Hello, and welcome to Where Am I To Go podcast. Today, before we start the show, I would like to bring up some business things that have kind of been on my mind so that you can know where to get more Where Am I To Go. First off, I'd like to talk about the Facebook page at Where Am I To Go podcast. It's on Facebook, and we've been posting some wonderful pictures of some of the places that we've been and some of the adventures that we've had. Not everything that we go and do is made into a podcast, and so we take pictures at different places and post those pictures so that you guys can enjoy some of the different places we've been. Also, I really am interested in listener feedback. I have an email address at where am I to go podcast at gmail.com. Again, that is where am I to go podcast at gmail.com. I would love to hear some of the listeners' comments and some of their ideas of places that might be interesting to visit and go and do. Today we're in Phoenix, Arizona, and I am at the Police Museum that is in the old courthouse down here. It's a museum I visited a couple of years ago. I really like the museum. It is small, but there's a lot of history here, a lot of history, and you guys will find out why I say that here shortly. But anyway, we're here with Bob, and Bob's going to take us through the museum and catch us up on all things police. Great. Thank you for doing this, Bob. Well, thanks for coming down. We're glad to have you. Okay. It, uh, as we walk into the museum, the first thing we see is a, is a silhouette or whatever, not silhouette. What do they call these things? A display. It's a mannequin, yeah, a mannequin within a display. Okay. And tell us about this. Well, we're the Phoenix Police Museum, so we're very specific just to Phoenix Police, but there is some outside agency influence that we include. But our first display is our marshal's office. So we had marshals beginning in 1881 when uh, Phoenix was very young, not even a city yet. Now, is this federal marshals? City marshals. City marshals, okay. Many people get confused, but we had city marshals. And in Arizona, we actually have uh, Paradise Valley, which has town marshals as well. So they're still the term marshal used throughout the country at city level and town level. Now, I know Tombstone was a big area, Tucson and some of that. Did you guys have some of the early uh, gunfighter types uh, as some of your marshals? We we did, and even later on we had some uh, really interesting characters, which we'll talk about as we get into the 30s and 40s. Uh, But our first marshal, Henry Garfias, really had quite a a history. He was... um, he came from California when it was Mexico. His dad was a, a, a jar, uh, army general in the Mexican uh, army, but he came over to Arizona, ran a, a supply wagon into Phoenix from Wickenburg, which is northwest of here. And he was such a prominent person in the, neighbor, in the community, he ran for uh, marshal and he won five times in a row from 81, 1881 to about 1885, 86. So they were having elections almost on a yearly basis. Election every year for the marshal in the city uh, positions back then. Okay, and they were all elected officials. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. That's interesting because now it's all hire by app and that kind of stuff. Today it's all hire, but it's they did it much like the county sheriff where you were voted into as the sheriff, which they still do today here locally. Uh, so it was very, uh, they, they basically copied the form of government with the county back then. Again, it was still just an early... Uh, uh, territory back then, so they really didn't have the 
didn't become a full city until much later. Okay. And as we look at this, we see a, a man that's dressed up in his eight, late 1800s attire. Looks kind of like a gold miner to me. Yeah, his, his name is actually Babe. His first name was really Dove, uh, but he was the local uh, town drunk, basically. Oh. And, and what's interesting is in our arrest books, uh, in one of our displays, we kept seeing the name Babe, and we couldn't figure out why they just put a nickname, and it turns out it's because he was arrested so often, the officers would just get lazy and write his nickname. <laughs> but uh, they wouldn't even charge him after a while. They just put him, just like Otis from uh, Andy Griffith. Right, show, right. They would just put him in jail, let him sleep it off, and let him go the next morning. Because he, he was a really good citizen. He just had a drinking problem. But uh, very realistic, rubber skin, looks like a, he's, he has glass eyes. Uh, uh, people get kind of freaked out when they see it. I tell little kids it's not real. They don't move. He doesn't <laughs> blink. And if he blinks, let me know because I'm running out the front door. And you got him hooked up here in uh, leg irons. Even. Yeah, so back in the day... We didn't have a proper marshal's office, um, so what we have is a large boulder um, that has a chain to it. We'd have a miner drill out the hole, chain or ch chisel out the hole, and then a blacksmith make the, the leg irons. So you would spend a day on the rock or pay a dollar to get off the rock. And, um, and he's talking about a good-sized rock here that has a hole in it with a spike going into it with a ring that holds the leg irons to it. Correct. Nobody's dragging that away. No, in fact, uh, they would put this under a tree because in Arizona it would be very hot, obviously. Right. But back then people were, were, they were tough. You know, they're outside a lot. Their skin was very dark, uh, weathered. So they were used to being outside. So it wasn't that big of a deal. They also, the rumor was they had a large timber, but the story went that uh, one of the prisoners was able to put it on his shoulder, you know, kind of like get a, some leverage, and then he went to the local bar and ordered a drink and embarrassed the marshal at the time, so they got rid of that. And, and put a big rock. Yes. Wow. <clears throat> that's, that's interesting, the, the way that they did that. Probably didn't have many people escape after the No, that, big it was very type. effective, and it seemed cruel, but it was very effective. Okay, and then you've got a little uh, jail set up yeah, back we'll here. Yeah, we'll walk up the, here on the jail and... Um, we have old, like, wooden walkways like they had back in the day, and that was to keep the dust um, off your boots and off the ladies' dresses back then. But we have a display with another prisoner in a jail cell. The wood outside is uh, actually from an ice house. It's over 120 years old that they had destroyed, and we recycled the wood to make it into our exhibit here. And then we have the marshal, Henry Garfias, inside, uh, checking out some wanted posters with his... Uh, his, his, his six-shooter on his side and his rifle up above him. Now, is that the way he would have actually been dressed? Yeah, they would have. They wouldn't, uh, you know, you watch TV and you see really fancy stuff, but they wouldn't have been, it'd just been basic clothing back in the day. Nothing. And he's just wearing basically the late 1800s yeah, striped yeah. pants with a vest and, and a coat. And a, Yeah, his boots, his hats, and things like that. Excuse me, not a coat, a shirt. Yeah, like a, yeah, yeah. a vest. Back then, their, their badges were martial badges, so our... Um, they would actually take a silver dollar and they they have a blacksmith cut out the star and then stamp it. And oh, really? That's how they did it back then. Even today, the Texas Rangers do something very similar where they take a Mexican equivalent of a silver dollar um, to keep the tradition with the Texas Rangers because they can't use U.S. currency, but they'll take a Mexican silver dollar, cut right. it out, and turn it into a Texas Ranger badge. And okay. that just keeps up their tradition. But you know, in theory, if you flipped, if you have an original and you flipped it over, you would see still the coinage markings where the other side was smooth, you know, shaped and smooth and sanded and things like that. So very no violation of defacing the not coin? Not back then. Not okay. back then. <laughs> Today, don't do it. I'm not recommending that. <laughs> 
Uh, from what I understood, the defacing of the coin was actually a thing that was going on back in the old times because they were actually made of silver. It was worth and more And you money. could take and scrape the face off, and over time you could get another dollar mm -hmm. if you scraped enough. Oh, wow. That's, that's what my understanding <laughs> yeah. of the defacing the, the coins was. Yeah, I would, I would believe it, yeah. But nowadays, you know, there's not any metal value in any no, of our no. coins to where defacing would, yeah. it shouldn't be a big deal. Because otherwise everybody would be melting them down. And, right. Yeah. Yep. Okay, so then we move on over to a little display of uh, Phoenix history, prehistoric Indian history, and early Phoenix history. Yeah, what we wanted to do is uh, the first Native Americans here that we know of were the Hohokam Indians in this area, and they dug out all the canals, brought irrigation into the, the valley here back in the uh, uh, like 200 AD, and they lasted, as best we know, it depends who you talk to, to about 15 or 1450 AD. Uh, probably after a drought, they left and blended in with other neighbor uh, Indian tribes locally. Okay. But we wanted to honor that because uh, they were the true pioneers of Phoenix. Uh, and then later came the pioneers from the 1800s that settled into Phoenix. Jack Swilling was a Confederate soldier that after the war, he was riding up the hills. He saw the, the dried out canals. He thought, you know what, if I link these up, they could be irrigated. And I'm, um, so he started an irrigation company got the water flowing and the town just took off after that. You had and using the same canals that the Indians same had canals used and they a probably, thousand years earlier. Yeah, and they probably added a few more as they grew, but basically it was the Indian canals they had, they had borrowed and taken over, yeah. Wow, that's amazing. In fact, some of them still exist. Some of the uh, original ones still exist in certain parts of town. And we have a, uh, the um, Pueblo Grande Museum that's dedicated to Hohokam Indians, and they have some of the, the original ruins still where you can come and see see them as well. So very interesting. Okay. Well, we may have to go check that one out. But in the display, we have some of the artifacts uh, from from the Hohokam Indians, uh, clay figures. Um, to get these, you, you know, you have to follow certain laws because you right. want to be respectful of grave robbing stuff. Now, this was actually taken off of uh, private property back in the 30s. Uh, but there are like a 1906 law and a 1975 law. There's several laws, so you, you want to be very respectful and careful that you're not dealing in an antiquity theft and disruption right, of, right. of graves, things like that. Okay, then we move to our next display, and we've got, uh, I'm hoping that's a picture of Phoenix, but it's an old one. It's an old one. It's early 1900, and it's downtown Phoenix. So it's probably, oh, um, probably several hundred feet, I would say, at best. The streets were named after presidents, and then the north-south streets were named after Indian tribes here locally. Uh, Hohokam, Papago, uh, uh, Cortez Street, um, Center Street obviously was an Indian name. Now, they don't exist today. They moved those streets further south of here. A lot of people ask if that was like a politically correct thing to do or something, and, and it wasn't. It was just they wanted to be more of a grid system like New York, Boston, things like that. So they got, uh, they just changed it that way. Part of the map, you'll see the, we show the site of the original marshal's office. In fact, we have a photograph of the marshal, his jailer, uh, as part of this display. Okay. And um, you'll see it's really interesting because it's basically a balloon level look of downtown, or all of Phoenix back then. And you get to see all the buildings that existed back then. And in the display, we have a couple of rifles and a shotgun that uh, the marshal would have used as one of his main tools back then. And this, and this map, or this picture, I guess is probably more what it is, is pretty good sized. It's uh, six foot by four foot, or, or 
four by eight or something like yeah. that. And it's a color uh, picture. And it looks like you must have had the total of about 2,000 people in Phoenix at this time. It would have been fairly tiny compared to today's standard. Yeah, that wouldn't be far off. Um, even looking at that, you know, when you look at the map, you can see just uh, two or three blocks from this museum back in that day was all farm fields. There was nothing right. more. And it was probably the same both east, west, and south. So the city was very tiny back then. In fact, you could buy land extremely cheap uh, back in the day. I think um, it was $100, $125 or so per acre. So wow. it was fairly cheap. Okay. And then we move forward a little bit more. Which way you want to go, right or left? We'll go to the Arizona Rangers right here. So we had Arizona Rangers similar to the Texas Rangers. Um, okay, and these were state or? They were state. So basically what happened is they wanted Arizona to become a state, not just a territory. Okay. So they decided, the, the government at the time decided to hire these guys uh, to kind of clean up the state. If they cleaned up the state, that would bring in the families, the women's, which would really civilize the state. And that was the ultimate goal. Um, very, you know, probably very heavy-handed because you had to be back in the day because you're dealing with um, outlaws, uh, uh, people searching for gold, just the, uh, the, the, the unwanted people that were just driving the crime in the state and, and keeping them from becoming a, uh, a state. So um, they're effective, but um, they still exist today as a um, organization, but not like a law enforcement and true okay. law enforcement organization, more of a, uh, just to honor the tradition of Arizona Rangers. But we have some badges from that time period, weapons as well, uh, that would have used back there, and a description of some of the history back then. It only lasted several years because they did their job, they were very effective, and then the state was able to uh, continue on. And they just kind of, did they work in, in certain local areas, or did they travel a they lot? They traveled or? all over the state, wherever, they probably had areas where they traveled all over the state wherever there was uprisings and problems. This particular picture is at a mine out east of Phoenix, um, Marenci, I believe. So there's, they're probably break, breaking up a, a miner strike at that time. Okay, yeah, because there's, what, probably 20 guys pictured? 20 or guys lined up, yeah. yeah. And uh, another nice big picture. The thing that's nice about your displays here is your display cases are very large, uh, and they have some items, but they got really nice background pictures also. Right, we try to make it easy to see. The, the text is pretty large to see read as well, so uh, try to make it as simple as possible. Okay, and we turn around this way. So this display, we have a, uh, it's basically 1920s. We have a lineup of about 10 officers from that period. They were wearing their, their dark blue heavy coat uh, jackets with their weapons out pointed, uh, probably like a parade inspection or something like that. The interesting about, uh, about this photo, it shows all the different um, generations from the early six shooter from the Cowboys to the more modern then 38 and to even one guy that had a 45 that probably was left he brought it back from World War One would be my assumption. Right. But so the, you, yeah, you do have a wide range of guns. Oh, yeah. Barrel sizes and everything else. Oh this yeah. Is really an interesting picture. Okay so they must have been supplying their own guns at that time. Yes they were in fact what they would probably have done is got grandpa's gun, could have got dad's gun, it was just passed down because, you know, they were expensive and most of them were farmers so they usually would have rifles instead of a, a pistol. But the ones that they had, they would have, um, some of the guys would have kept over from cowboy days basically. Right. The old six shooters. 
and that even in the display you'll see some examples of that uh, some of the the 45 the the 38 uh, some of the handcuffs they used back then a couple of billy clubs billy clubs there's two arrest books uh, on display they're about 1900 1901 um, they list the person's name who arrested them and usually you'll, you'll see what they're arrested for most of it's drunk and disorderly in fact quite a bit of it's drunk and disorderly so that gives you an idea of what the town was like back in the day kind of drunk and disorderly drunk and disorderly and then vagrancy <laughs> was the other one uh, you, if you came in town without a job and any money they'd arrest you for vagrancy uh, they, that was trying to keep the, the riffraff out. In fact, they'd meet you at the train, and if you didn't have a reason to be here in Phoenix and have a way to support yourself, they'd put you back on the train or put you in jail and then drive you to the end of town and drop you off and send you on your way. Really? Yeah. They were, uh, didn't put up with much back then. But again, they were trying to clean up the town and keep it under control. Wow. Yeah, so I guess you don't pull into town and go looking for work. No. No, you, want to, you have to be able to support yourself. Wow. Okay. Then we step on over and we see probably one of the first police cars. Yeah, this is a model, uh, uh, 1919 Model T. And it was called the Tin Lizzie because it has a, uh, uh, basically a, a wooden skeleton wrapped in tin. Right. And we wouldn't have had many cars because we were just keeping up with the rest of the population. So as the rest of the population got cars, we would get cars to keep up with them. Uh, so we were always behind everyone else. Uh, these cars would run three, four hundred dollars a year, or three hundred, four hundred dollars to purchase. Back then, the annual income was about two thousand dollars, so it wasn't. Um, um, you know, you, you have to put it that all was Ford, that was Ford's big goal. Yeah. was to make sure yep. that everybody, everybody could afford one, yep. including his workers. And and the joke was that you could um, get in any color, long as it's black. That's that's the the. Uh, Ford thing. Right. Um, the other thing about it is Henry Ford would take the engine crate and he would have it specified to to a certain size so that he could take that that wooden crate and then use it for the seats in the car. He was so efficient at what he did. It just made it um, save him money down the road. So um, also here we have an old tele. Uh, Telegraph. It says police telegraph, but it was actually a call box. So on top of this building, we had towers with lights on it and bells. So you, you had two officers working. They'd hear a, a bell go off. They'd look up and see a red light or green light. If you're the green light officer working on this side of town, you'd go to the call box, pick it up. If, if, you're on the, if it was, the light was red, then you would, you'd be on the east side of town, say go to the call box, see what they wanted. That's how they communica communicated back then. So that might have been, we're not sure when they talk about red light district, if that's where it came from, because the red light might have been on the seedier side of town. We, we don't know for sure, but that was our early uh, communications system. And how far apart were these phones? You know, they would be, they'd be scattered throughout the town, downtown. There might be up to 20, 30 of these phones, so the officer didn't have to walk too far to get to them. So, um, uh, the last one even lasted, it was up in a place until about 1981 or 82. It was in an alley not too far from here. And then it disappeared. It was abandoned, but it uh -huh. disappeared one night. And we assumed some retiree went there in the middle of the night and, mm -hmm. and took it. And honestly, that's how we got this one. Somebody had it and returned it to the museum to be preserved. So I'm glad they preserved it because it probably would have been melted down or something or thrown right. in the trash. So 
Uh, I don't condone theft, but it, it preserved, I want to say they were preserving the artifact for us. <laughs> we've, we've heard some other stories at different places about situations similar to that. Yeah. yeah. You know, where somebody had a misdeed, but it actually preserved it, yeah. a great piece of history. Well, even like behind us, somebody saved these, these pillars, and it's a traffic control pillar. So back in the day, on a Saturday night, they didn't have tra uh, traditional lights in the early 1900s here. So Saturday, they have all the dances in downtown Phoenix, so they, all the traffic would be here and it'd be a, a mess. So they'd get one guy, an old, uh, probably an old-timer, to stand in the middle of the street with this pole that came out of this base, and on top of the bowl, pole, it had intersecting signs. On one side, it said stop and go, or stop. On the, on, on the other side, it said go. So he would just turn the whole sign so it would face one direction for those people that were to stop and the other direction for those people that were to go. And he would do that all night during the dance period. And then when it's quieted down, he would just shut everything down and they would treat it as a four-way stop. That was early. So did he control. have this lit up also? No, no. He was standing in the middle yeah. of the road yeah. telling people to yeah. stop while they're they driving home from a party. Back then, they actually had gas lamps that were on wires that they could drop down, relight, and then pull the cable up to get the light above the street level. Okay. Yeah, and then eventually electric, obviously. So, so then he was visible. So he was visible, yeah. That sounds like kind of a, a rough job anyway, <laughs> it, standing it was, in the middle of the road deciding when, when you could turn it to go or especially stop. Especially with everybody partying downtown and having a good time, and who knows how much they had to drink. You know, you don't want to be uh, the next victim of their, their driving, so. That is really interesting. Wow. Okay. And then we have the genesis of law enforcement. So what we wanted to do is talk about a little bit, uh, I mentioned we're a Phoenix Police Museum, but we don't ignore the fact of where all law enforcement came from and things like that, just like our early Phoenix right. history. So uh, we talk about the um, earlier times of basically the beginning of law enforcement, best that can be researched, and it occurred back in the Roman times. So we talk a little bit about that. You'll see a a replica of one of the Roman swords that uh, would have been used back in that time. Then it goes into Sir Robert Peel in, in, in uh, Britain, London. The, uh, they called them the Peelers, the Bobbies, uh, you know, how the history of constable on patrol, cop, you know, how all those terms came about uh, back in the day. And then it goes into early law enforcement in America, including the Pinkerton uh, Detective Agency, which was right. civilian, but uh, had a, quite an interesting history and, and background as well. Now, the Pinkertons were mostly in the 29s and 30s, right? Yeah. They, or did they start a lot earlier? They're still that? around, actually. They're still around as a security agency, believe it or not. It's not like back then. They were well uh, known for uh, doing law enforcement because they could get away with a lot more things that a actual officer couldn't do. So they okay. did a lot of uh, questionable stuff. One of their, the things they were known for is they threw some dynamite in Jesse James' hideout mm -hmm. to try to... to assassinate them basically but they ended up killing someone else and injuring another person so they kind of lost a lot of credibility after that and then we go okay. into our early history as well talking about throughout the country all the pro, uh, prohibition and the corruption that came along with it American and national or actually North American law enforcement from Mexico or not Mexico from Canada to Arizona uh, to the US really had a lot of problems in the 30s and 40s with the corruption um, and it, a lot of it had to do with prohibition. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. Prohibition was supposed to cut down right. all the all the bad elements of society. A lot of organized crime came level. from that. You know, NASCAR came from prohibition. Uh, it's amazing the um, the amount of influence that had. We even had officers back then that would bust up a a liquor 
business that you know is operating out of a door. You you know you open it up, give them the liquor, you give them the money. Well, the officers would break it up and then they would turn around and they would take it over and they just continue the operation. But that was the that was the corruption back then. Um, certainly not today, but but that was what they did back in the day. Wow, interesting. There is no more police corruption nowadays, right? I hope not. But I, you know, it's <laughs> it's like any any job. There's always you always have bad seeds that you you want to get rid of, and uh, you do your best to get rid of those people. Okay, we're looking at a little bullet making mold and some lead. Uh, were they making their own bullets back at the yeah, time? Yeah, so or? our academy would actually make their own bullets. They had this little device that looked like a large uh, lawn trimmer thing that was a mold for bullets and they would pour hot um, lead into this this bullet maker that would make four heads at a time you pop it open release a, a bar and then you uh, do the rest you know you put the gunpowder in the um, the casing and then seal it with the, the lead bullets so that's how they save money to make okay. uh, ammo for the academy i was wondering why they why they would go to that effort Just, i mean i reload a yeah. little bit here and there but yeah and, and depending on times of the year, you know, if it's during war times, it'd probably be harder to get actual ammo. Right. And it was probably easier to get the raw material and make your own, to be honest. So that might have had some influence on it as well. Okay. This here is a large display as well. More from the 30s and 40s. Um, we have a, a bulletproof vest detectives would have worn. It wouldn't have been very common, but it was bulletproof vest, but it looks like a regular, like a just a dress. It looks like a dress vest. Yes, yeah. It doesn't look like the ones no. that you see nowadays no. where it makes everybody bulk up no. and some of that. Yeah. You could have wore this real easily. They wouldn't have been very common, and I doubt that we would have had many at all, but they were available if people wanted them. What was the liner in those, do you know? I, you know, I really don't know. Um, probably just really thick wo woven material like they have today, that Kevlar, right. kind of the same philosophy, but it wouldn't have been Kevlar and it wouldn't have been steel. It would have been too heavy back then. Do you think it would have been very effective? We actually have a picture from a newspaper article that shows the guy demonstrating it, holding a gun out in front of him and shooting himself. Oh, really? Yeah, and the article didn't end, uh, and he died. <laughs> you know, he it, it was successful, so I'm sure it hurt like heck after. I was going to say, how big yeah. of a bruise yeah. did he have? Yeah. Wow. And this picture that you have in the back of this display is really interesting. You've got a couple of motorcycle cops on old motorcycles like you said right. it's got to be 1940s or so yep. and then another picture of a of an officer standing up on the seat of his motorcycle uh, with his arms out straight to the side demonstrating safe riding back in the well, 40s. Yeah, actually people think he's messing around but that's how they you're, you're right actually he's demonstrating his proficiency because that's how they showed how much control they had over the bike so Today we look at that and we're thinking somebody's messing around, but that's really how they trained them to show how proficient. And it's a very formal outfit because they have these white, uh, poofy military right. type pants and then a, a pit helmet, like a safari type helmet, and uh, heavy gloves that went up almost to the elbow. And uh, that was the dress uniform. So there's probably some event going on there, but this is showing how proficient they are. There's even videos that show these officers weaving in and out of each other, looking like they're about to hit at 45 right. degree angles, but they're just off ever so slightly so they can cross each other's path. But that was, again, to show how efficient they were and well-trained they were on motorcycles. 
Wow, I'm glad you corrected that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Even, yeah. but I like to be corrected. No. I come up. No, with, you were actually I come right. Up with, you were actually right. <laughs> well, it well, was sarcasm at its at its well, worst. It was, it was correct sarcasm. <laughs> <laughs> also, in this display, we have a 45 fully automatic machine gun. Uh, now we are not Tommy gun. Tommy gun, yes, yeah. submachine gun used commonly in, in the war, World War II. Um, a lot of people ask, well, why do we have it? Because we're a nonprofit museum. Well, we have special permission from ATF. It's been disabled, so it can't. It's not fully automatic anymore. And then we have. Uh, uh, it's actually uh, the weapon is owned by the City of Phoenix Police Department. Um, so we have special approval from ATF and the Phoenix Police Department. Amnesty. But a lot of museums have have fully auto weapons, right, right. so th that doesn't surprise no. me at all. Also, you'll see there's a, a 38 uh, with a it's a blued, you know, a black weapon revolver with white pearled handles, and there's four. I don't know if you can see it, but there's four marks on it. Yeah. And okay. I have people. I said, well, can you guess what that's from? And they usually guess right. That's four kills. So I, I talked about the earlier display case where the, some of those guys had their old uh, gunfighter guns. Right. And this guy that owned this, uh, Gordon Selby, actually was a gunfighter, uh, and he became an officer. So every time he killed somebody, he would notch his gun. Now, I tell people, you got to think of history. You don't, you don't want to erase history. You explain history. So the people that want to erase history would say, well, you need to remove that and put normal grips on. Well, that... No. That you're just hiding history. That's what happened then. You don't do it today. But that was very common practice. That's just what you did. So um, wasn't a big deal back then. Well, and, and, you know, I think justice was a lot different back in those days. It's one of those things that if somebody was was threatening you or, yep. or was coming onto your claim or was trespassing yep. on your land and stealing, uh, I, don't think, I don't think no. a lot of people put up with, with uh, hey, why don't you come back again tomorrow when the DA doesn't no. prosecute you. In fact, they had vigilante committees, is what they called them, and they're basically um, mobs that would, would take prisoners out of the jail, you know, hold the sheriff and the marshal at gunpoint, take the prisoner out of the jail and hang them on their own. Right. And sometimes the, the law enforcement would look the other way. Sometimes they really would try to prevent it. Not always successful because they were, they were overmanned or undermanned at the time. But that's, that's the way it was back then, um, good or bad, but that's the history that you don't cover up, you explain it. Right. Nope. That's, that's interesting. And this was all done before he was a police officer. Probably, but he probably added to it because he was one of the best shots. We have several stories where uh, he was involved in shootings, and they, sometimes they actually waited for him to get on the scene because he could easily take somebody out, much more effective than half the department. We have boxes and boxes of ribbons he won at gun uh, uh, gun shows and uh, shooting matches. So okay. he was just an incredible shot. In fact, there's a state memorial to all the officers killed in the line of duty, and he wasn't killed in the line of duty, but they based the statue on him, which we'll see later in the memorial room. Okay. This, this here looks like about 1940 sometime. Uh, yeah, this is probably mid 40s. Uh, they're they're looking at a, a bottle of alcohol, and there's probably some evidence on the table. J.J. Uh, McGrath was the chief of detectives back then. Uh, they'd call him the Hat Squad because they always wore the hats. Um, they, Which is kind of the popular hats for right, the late right. 40s. And know. they'd have the really short tie that went up to about chest level, a little <laughs> bit below, and uh, I don't. That was a fashion thing. I don't know if it was because silk was hard to get during the war, or it's just fashionable. Your shirt was, your coat was buttoned up anyway, so why do you need a, a tie right. down to your belt? That I don't really know. But in here we have um, some weapons, a, a rifle uh, for, that the PD carried. 
This actually came from the Yuma Territorial Prison. So when they upgraded their rifles from the prison, they gave them to the local law enforcement because, as I mentioned earlier, we're always behind. Right. You know, and it's the same today. We're always trying to keep up with what's happening out in the community. So we didn't have rifles. They did. They got rid of them. We were glad to take them, just like other departments. And it has PPD 25 written on right. the stock. It looks like, is it 30-30? It's lever I, action. Yeah, it's lever lever action. I believe it is a 30-30. Not really that important, just kind of curious. What's interesting, you'll see a small book, probably the size of a small diction, like a pocket dictionary. And that would have been our rule book. So um, in 19, this display talks some on 1949, but our rules would have been very simple. You know, treat people well. It's the same today, but it's it didn't have as many rules as there's today. wasn't nearly as codified. No, in fact, if you were to print off our, our policies today, it probably, it's all electronic now, but if you were to actually print it, it'd be two uh, three-inch binder, you know, binders, just, you know, hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of pages. It's just, in, but you have to have all those policies to protect the public and be very um, um, conscious of what you do in treating people, things like that. And back in 49, uh, they had four homicides and 20 rapes and 68 robberies. So the theft and all these other problems were pretty minimal back then. You know, compared right. to today, you know, there might be criminal homicides. It depends on the year, but, you know, 180 to 240. You um, also have a population difference that you've got to take into consideration. Absolutely. You know, four homicides that might when, be you've, 50, got, when you've got 10,000 yeah, people yeah, or yeah, 50,000 yeah. people is, is a lot different than 150 oh, homicides absolutely. when you got 2 million. Yeah, absolutely. Also on the display, they have a jacket. It's called the Eisenhower jacket. So it's based after President Eisenhower, but when he was a general. Okay. And it's a, a dark blue uh, uh, uniform jacket with brass buttons based on what the military would have wore, but in a green version. But we did the blue version, but they called it the Eisenhower jacket after General Eisenhower, later President Eisenhower. So they wore a lot of jackets and stuff here in Phoenix? That would have been more dress outfit so maybe a formal event or maybe the command staff you know okay. the chief things like that because uh arizona it's in the summer it's too hot here in Phoenix. i was gonna say yeah. it's so, a, it'd be almost hard to keep a tie on well, and then we turn and look at this display and there's all these officers it kind of answers my question absolutely got a regular shirt but they're still wearing a dadgum tie yeah so to your point what we have on display is a light blue shirt that the officers would have wore in the 60s and 70s up to the 80s um that would be cooler during the day in theory. Uh, and then still dark pants, a black belt, and all that stuff. At night, uh, um, they might wear the darker long sleeve shirt, things like that. They eventually got rid of like the ties, um, eventually, eventually got rid of the ties as standard uniform. Now they were all pull away, so it couldn't be a choking hazard with a, when you're fighting okay. somebody. Uh, just like uh, uh, some of the lanyards we wear, they're, they're breakaways, so you can't be choked with them. Um, back then, when you got out of your car, you had to ha put your hat on every time. Later, it became your helmet because uh, that was the protocol. Uh, when it got a little more turbulent in the late 60s, um, they had everybody wear their helmet every time they got out of their car just for safety so they wouldn't be shot at. Um, but the picture here shows the probably the entire department that's there for a parade. So it might have been Memorial Day or something like that uh, on, on uh, display with a, the 67 police car. We have four antique cars that we drive down here, uh, one each day normally. Uh, we have a 67 tan and white. We have a 60 Studebaker, 62 Studebaker tan and white. We have a 50 Ford black and white. 
and we have a 48 Plymouth black and white. So wow. depending on the day and depending if they're running. Now you say drive them down here, you mean just park them? Park on them out in front of them. Yeah, there'll be one out in front, so when we leave, we'll, we'll okay. see, we can see it before the end of That's the cool. And then in this display also, you've got a shotgun with a foldable stock. Right. Uh, it's, it's an older foldable stock. Not nearly as efficient as the ones that they have now. But. Now, these were really convenient because they'd fit under the seat. If right. you worked, uh, like I worked the housing projects, um, you could put it on your seat. You have a, you had a uh, strap, you could throw it over your shoulder if on a really critical incident. It's just that not many people carried it because you had to qualify it with it folded down, um, shooting it almost like a pistol grip, and not too many people could. And then when it, it hurt like heck because there was no real... A rubber right. tip on the end to put against your shoulder so it was not the easiest gun to shoot but other things in here we have a fogging machine that looks like a leaf blower um, it's probably Tell, uh, yeah and it's a pepper fogger it's a pepper it's fogger a, so if you can imagine a, a leaf blower with a compartment to put uh, liquid in that's really what it was so an officer would stand there just like a leaf blower and, and spray it towards a crowd 20 feet away uh, it's very heavy probably 50 pounds uh, or more and then you're subject to if it if it runs if it stops running you're out of luck and then now you have a big um, battering ram if anything it's, it's uh, what was it run on uh, it would have been just gasoline yeah just oh, like a it, gas so uh, like a chainsaw type thing right. oil and gas mix okay mixture, yeah wow and then um, and what kind of pepper were, were they just using like a cayenne or something well or? it's kind of like today uh, it's it's more refined today but they would have used use whatever military grade they'd had back okay. available okay. back then today we use the cayenne pepper uh, it, you know people talk about people get maced they say it looks it looks horrible and stuff but all it is is crushed up cayenne pepper I mean okay. you could do it at home if you wanted to, to get the same experience it's, it literally is cr crushed up cayenne pepper um, and, then and the it says they could they could push tear gas out of oh, there yeah. also. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We also have some old radios. We have old uh, walkie-talkie, similar to like you would like the show MASH. Right. It, it kind of reminds me of that. That one you'd wind up and then you would talk. This one's a little more uh, newer than that, but it's basically a box, like a large Bible or book with a phone headset sitting on top with an antenna on the side. And the lieutenants would carry that and the um, um, like guys working undercover would, would uh, use that for So this wasn't it was installed in a car, nope, it was nope. a mobile unit? It was unit. mobile, you take it with you and there'd only be a few. In fact, there's a picture to the side that shows two detectives in a hallway okay. with their shotgun leaning up against the building and then the guy using the, a very similar radio for communications. Um, okay. So eventually they would get small portable radios. But back in the day, when you called in, um, if you left your car, you had no communications. So a lot of times they would take the microphone put it outside the window and they had the ability to turn the speaker on on the um, oh, on the light bar that had a speaker and they could have they could project the sound of the oh. radio so they could hear it they just couldn't communicate so if they got in a fight they'd have to drag the prisoner back to the car to pick up the microphone phone hanging outside the the right. door to ask for more help or let go of the prisoner which most cops wouldn't do they the fight just continued on so wow and then if you notice the uh, crime rate now this is 20 years later now there's 46 homicides versus four in 1949. So, right. like as you talked about, the population increased, um, the crime increased. Um, it, the 60s was very, you know, very turbulent, turbulent, uh, turbulent. Thank you, time um, for the city of Phoenix and the entire country as well. And then you'll see our rule book is probably three times bigger than the oh, other, yeah. the one from 1940. So now it's the size of. Um, I don't know, maybe uh, just a, maybe a book, a small book, 
small hardcover book. But it looks like in the in the picture here, you've got what two hundred and fifty, yeah, maybe three hundred yeah, officers to the, take care of everything. Yeah, they're all dressed, standing with their hands behind their back. The command staff with the chief is in front. I always like it because when you come here, you'll see three three of our female officers in the front in their skirts, but they must have told a joke because they're all laughing and having a good time. Um, so I don't know if they got in trouble for that because it's supposed to be a serious photo. Everybody's serious and smiling or looking serious, but those those three or at least two of them are kind of uh, messing around a little bit. So that, that's now, would they have been actual officers? Yeah, so back in, uh, uh, we have a display on our female officers, but back in the uh, 70s, or before the 70s even, they hired uh, women to be police officers, but most of it was juvenile uh, type crimes, uh, mi missing persons, uh, okay. uh, writing tickets, things like that. Yeah, I was thinking meter maids or, exactly, or exactly. something like that. It wasn't really until the, the mid-70s that they became patrol uh, officers. So think of the war where they didn't allow women for a long time to serve in any kind of combat type situation. Well, the departments were kind of the same until the 70s and they became full officers just like everyone else okay. riding in a patrol car, answering calls, things like that. Okay. Wow. We have a display of some of the badges and patches over time. So our early patch from the 50s was very simple white with the uh, Phoenix bird, um, its wings stretched over the sun, civil defense police patch from the 50s, and then our current patches, and then badges all the way back to the 1890s wow. uh, to present day. And the 1890s says city police, yeah. and it's just a star that's maybe inch and a half, two inches. Yeah, size of a half dollar maybe. Yeah, and then you can take it on up through all the different years here with uh, different designs you really change the designs a lot it's they follow whatever was customary throughout the country you know okay um, and like for today we we have the oval sh shaped badge which is really lapd style and then we just copy the larger agencies um, and most departments if you go back east they do a different type of badge so it's, it's very regional on what what the uh, departments do and you know between federal state and local they're they're different as well it's just whatever that agency prefers Wow. Yeah, back in 1890, you'd had to be looking pretty hard to see if it was a cop or not. <laughs> in fact, there's a small display here of oh, wow. uh, that's under construction. We haven't quite finished it, but it shows four different badges of their commemorative badges that officers could wear here in Phoenix, including there's a pink uh, handgun that somebody had made for an officer and pink handcuffs. Now, it was a gift. She couldn't accept it because it was from the community. So oh. the museum could take it in her behalf and put it on display. But as an officer, you can't receive gifts like that. So that's why we have it. But the other badges, like we have a pink badge for cancer awareness. We have a 125th anniversary of the department badge and 140th, which just occurred. In fact, okay. you might even see some of our officers still wearing this 140th badge because um, the these all these badges I'm showing you are approved to be worn during certain times of the year here in Phoenix. We okay. have a memorial badge, so every time an officer is killed in the state of Arizona or uh, memorial shrouds are authorized, they can wear this badge, which was designed by the museum. And they also wear it at our uh, police officer funerals as well. So it's a w another way to commemorate uh, our officers um, that have died in the line of duty, employees that have died in the line of duty. So now you've got several different badges that they can wear at different times. Right. That's absolutely. interesting. Super so. Bowl would be another example. When it comes here in 2023, in the past, they designed a badge just for the Super Bowl. Oh, really? So officers could wear that badge during a certain uh, time. Um, 
Very interesting. Okay. They have an autism badge right now that they can wear. Um, so that it, it's not very common. It happens all the time, but there's certain times throughout the, the history of the department they've allowed things to represent things happening in the community, to honor the community, to, um, to show awareness, things like that. Now, does the officer own the badge? So the you actually, these are all purchased privately, so it's not any city, uh, very good question, not any city money used for that. They're made by, like, the museum or the union or something like that. Your actual badge you get assigned to you when you become a police officer is the city's badge. Okay. Now, when you retire, you can purchase it from the city if you prefer prefer and a lot of people do to put on display um i would think that would be, I, yeah. I would think that'd yeah. be really common just like your weapon you know after you know 20 30 years of having the gun you can buy the gun once you retire and because the department's not going to reissue a, a gun right they just, they just buy a new one after that period of time wow that's that's interesting yep. with the badge thing one of the things we're known for is the uh we're in the, walking into the miranda display so we have a big copy on the backside of one of the other displays of the Miranda rights that's signed by Ernest Miranda. And then, uh, uh, best I could describe... It's really signed by Miranda? Yeah. Um, wow. On this display, opposite wall shows some of the photographs from Miranda. Let's, let's talk about Miranda a little bit. Miranda wasn't a good guy. Miranda committed two sexual assaults, kidnappings, and robberies that we know of, um, that we wrote and linked to him. Uh, I'll give you a quick history of him. Or the case itself. Carol Cooley is one of the detectives that investigated. The other detective has since passed away, but Carol is still alive and with us. He comes down here on Mondays occasionally to to uh, help with tours. Let's and let's let's just to give people an idea of what we're talking about with Miranda. Everybody's seen Adam Twelve right. or or the police movies. You have the movies. right to remain silent. Uh, right. Every movie, every show you've ever seen that is from the Miranda case, which started here in Phoenix. In fact. Where we're at the marshal's office, right? That was the interview room. So one of the things I failed to say is the building we're in. This is the Phoenix Police Department from 1928 to about 74. Okay. So this bottom floor was police, and once the city mayor and everybody moved out of the space above us, they moved across the street. We took over the entire building. So Miranda came down here to be interviewed. So what happened um, back in the day is the the the, the woman that was raped uh, afterwards she would. At, she would have someone meet her at the bus stop. So she worked across the street at a movie theater. She'd take the bus home, and a, a gentleman friend would meet her at the bus stop, walk her home, because she was obviously traumatized. Well, one of the time they're walking home at night, they see the same car. Uh, so he memorizes the plate. Now, he throws some of the digits off a little bit, but they call the police, and they do some follow-up. Uh, one plate combo goes to, like, a, a retirement community. The people are elderly, they have no kid at home, no son, uh, didn't match. The other one was in Mesa, Miranda. Uh, the car was in the driveway. This, this seat was described by the victims, matched the material, there was rope, uh, everything matched. Not enough to arrest them yet, but as an officer, enough to start getting you to, to think you need to talk to this person. So they, they knocked on the door, his common-law wife answered. He's not married, it's just his girlfriend he lives with and they consider themselves married, but she wakes him up and they say, will you come downtown so we can talk to you? And he says, yeah. He didn't ask why. Well, he knew why, but he, he wanted to play dumb. He said, yeah, I'll go downtown. Which most people would say, well, why? What did, what? So right. he went downtown. He sat in the back seat of an unmarked police car. No screen. He's not handcuffed. So he's not in custody. And that's the key I'm trying to make. 
he could he could say let me out and they'd have to pull over and he'd have to get out or they'd have to physically arrest him at that point so he came down here the victims looked at him they weren't 100 percent sure they had him speak they weren't 100 percent sure so afterwards uh, the detective and uh, miranda were sitting and miranda asked how did i do and the detective being smart he said well not so good he was just generic and or, you know, not so good. He could be talking about anything. Right. And says, Miranda says, well, I guess I'll tell you the truth then. And that's when he uh, confessed the crime. On the wall, you, there's an actual copy of the confession he wrote. Now, it's blacked out some of its uh, language that we have young kids in here, so it talks about body parts and things, so we can black that out. But he signed the confession. It's his own writing, his signature. Uh, so he was convicted. At that time, they had three cases dealing with Fourth and Fifth, Fourth and Fifth Amendment issues: um, right to speedy trial, right to an attorney, you know, self-incrimination, things like that. And uh, Miranda came along, and they chose Miranda just because it was one of the four, but it was alphabetical. They say they just picked the first case okay. alphabetically. Um, so during this occurred in '63, the case didn't even get heard until '66. So it was a three-year period. During that time, they interviewed the detective, uh, Carol Cooley, and said, these are test questions. And one of the questions was, was he in your custody? Well, his answer was yes. But he, if he had said, he was thinking he's in my physical custody, he's with me. Right. But if they had said, was he under arrest, he would have said, no, absolutely not. Mm -hmm. But that was a challenge question from the court, and it tripped up the detective. And so custody, then legally to the court, was arrest so therefore that case had to be thrown out uh, um, but cops don't give up easily there's two cases so that they only take one case to the Supreme Court so they're, they're still able to go forward on the second case without the confession and everything else and what they did is they went back to his common-law wife to question her now she was happy to talk to the police because he's in jail all this time and he had contacted her his common-law wife and said hey tell victim number two I'll marry her if she doesn't talk to the you know if you know she doesn't um, file charges and all that. Well, this girl's the girlfriend, common law, common law wife. She doesn't. She's mad at that, obviously. You know, I thought I was the, the wife. Um, so she talks to the police enough information to keep him in jail for the second crime. They try to throw out that that information, saying, well, it came from his wife. Well, we don't honor common law marriages in the state of Arizona. So you could be in California, and, and I don't know what it is, six months, if you're living together and cohabitating, you can legally be considered common-law marriage, which gets certain benefits. But in a marriage, you can't testify against each other. Uh, you can't use things. just like going to a priest, a rabbi, a pastor. And so they, that's what they're trying to say is the common-law wife's testimony cannot be used against them for that reason because they're married, and they weren't. So that was all used against them. He stayed in jail. Uh, he eventually did get out after a couple of years. He went to Florence, which is a prison out uh, east of Phoenix. They're actually shutting down. Um, once he got out, um, he would go around. Now they created these Miranda cards from the Supreme Court's ruling. So instead of trying to make it up, they just, whatever the Supreme Court said, it should include the following. They just <laughs> put quotes around it, right. and that's what they read, basically. So he, now officers carried these Miranda cards when they interviewed someone for a crime. And what Miranda would do is go up to you as an officer, ask for a stack of them. He would sign one, because now he's infamous. He'd give right. you a copy, and then he'd go sell them for a buck on the street each. And that's just what he did to make money. He was a small-time gambler and, and uh, um, drug dealer. 
but he was at a bar. There's a picture of a bar down here, kind of a, a, a shady bar called the Amapola Bar, uh, where the arena is across the street. And he was in there gambling, got in a fight, went in the bathroom to clean up. When he came out, the guy was waiting for him again with a knife and stabbed him. He died. Uh, they arrested the suspect, and guess what? They read him. The Miranda rights for killing Miranda. Miranda. So wow. talk about a big circle. Now uh, the rest of the story, like Paul Harvey says, the rest of the story, um, they didn't have enough to hold him because nobody would come forward as witnesses, basically. So they had to let him go. And the next day, when they went to find him, he was gone, fled to Mexico. So if he's alive today, he's probably in his 80s, and um, there's been no contact with him. Now, did he have a beef specifically with Miranda? It was all or? over gambling. All just, over yeah, gambling. Just okay. a card game. Just all. Just a card game. That's all it was. But um, but that's how. Now the Miranda card we have signed. We actually got from an undercover officer, who's probably in his 80s as well, and he gave us a little bio on. It, and he actually got it uh, when he was undercover, talking to Miranda. So Miranda didn't, didn't know he was a cop. So we have a kind of a signed statement from the officer uh, that had gotten the card. Wow. Uh, for Miranda, so it's it's very uh, interesting. They're highly collectible if you can find them, but that just there's not very many of them out there anymore. Obviously, this is a oh. copy of the original. The original is actually locked in the safe uh, of the police police museum. Cool. Yeah, that's a that's a lot of history there because yeah, yeah. everybody everybody knows about the Miranda. Well, and a know, lot of the, people the statement that you got. Yeah, make. and a lot of people don't realize. Um, with Miranda, at that time, there was no duty to read anybody anything. You went to civics class in grade school, you learned your rights. And it was different back then, but you just were, everybody knew what their rights were, so it wasn't required. And when you went to court, that's when they gave you your attorney and all those other things. Right. So it's not like the officer made any mistake or anything like that. That was the standard policy back then. And then that's kind of why they wanted to test it and get something a little more solid as they went forward, at least the Supreme Court uh, did. So that's kind of the history. And because of that, Miranda was free to walk. Yeah. I mean, well, you know, after he still served time. He oh, served did he? about seven years, yeah. So he didn't get off. Uh, he got off the first one, but not the second one. So okay. he still did seven years. Uh, yeah, he actually was a barber out at Florence Prison. Um, so he at least did something productive during that time. Well, good. Okay, now we're getting we're mo we're moving up in time here. This looks more like uh, the modern police stuff you would see every day. Yeah, it's interesting because when we put this in ten years ago, we've been in this space ten years. We were across the street for twenty. We've been around thirty years. But when we put this in, it was the modern uniform. Well, now it's actually kind of historic because now the officers wear more of a, a tactical vest on the outside. Okay. The radio has even changed to it's much smaller. It's, a, it's basically a computer with an antenna. It's about an $8,000 radio. The wow. mic is wireless, so that can't be used to you know, choke the officer. Um, weapons are pretty much the same. They're either 9mm, 40s, or 45 Glocks. Uh, the spray you had talked about, the tear gas. We have a canister about the size of a, oh, I don't know, two or three inches tall and about an inch and a quarter wide. Uh, and that's our, our pepper spray. And again, it looks like a bear spray. It, it's literally yeah. bear spray. It's right. what it is. It comes out kind of an orange color. It's mixed in with water. Um, when they first came out, the manufacturers used alcohol, which was really a bad idea because anybody with a flame, it's just like um, oh. it would just become a portable torch. So they converted it to water. Okay. And now you don't have that, that problem. But it just shows some of the early equipment uh, that officers here in Phoenix have. And it'd be 
very similar to officers across the country, basically. Still doesn't seem like 2000 was that long ago. No, no, it doesn't. <laughs> <that's>, no, no. <laughs> it's getting, it's, it, yeah. <laughs> okay, now we're looking at a, at an ice cream truck. Yeah, well, you had mentioned no. the meter maids earlier, <laughs> but that's what it is. The meter maids, mostly there were women back then. Right. Um, would ride this three-wheeled Honda. So if you can imagine a motorcycle with two wheels on the back and a large compartment for storing items and then a light on top of that compartment. So they would keep all their traffic cones, uh, flares. Uh, they would mark the tires with chalk. Okay. So when they, if that car didn't move within the next time they came around, they'd write a ticket before they had actual um, you know, ways to check the meters. But we have this on display uh, kids love to get on it. The lights come on. They can ride on it, take oh, photographs. Really? Um, we have uniforms they can try and adults as well. Just another fun opportunity as well as some of these. We'll take a picture of Linda on it yeah, after there we're you go. done. Some of these cutouts as well. You can pop your head in. and. Um, yeah, just, you had a John Wayne pop out up yeah. front. Yeah. And then we have uh, some patches on display. Oh, wow. Now we have a lot more uh, all, the way, all over the country and the world. Uh, we have a section just on other governments or other countries, uh, tribal patches, state patches, federal patches. Um, Those are really collectible too, aren't they? I mean, if you're a police officer, you're always looking for patches, is that? They're always collectible, yeah. We get people coming in all the time to, to donate patches. We try to rotate them out because we just wouldn't have the space to put patches. Every patch we have, we probably have five times the collection that you see here. Wow. But we try to have it where you at least can find something connected to you somehow. You're oh, that's where we used to live, that's where my mom lives, something like that. So, and usually people will come through here and they just have a great time searching through it. And to me, it's like min miniature artwork. Um, I was going to say, it is artwork. Yeah, the, it, the, all the different patches have different uh, things from where they're at or, or different designs on them. Some are very basic and, quite honestly, to me, boring. Some of them are just beautiful, absolutely beautiful. And somebody had put quite a bit of work into the, uh, the patches. So... Um, it's like collecting stamps, I guess. Just right. know, each one is a little different. I've done I've done work for some different police officers and stuff. I'm a flooring installer. Oh, okay, okay. And I I'm in their house and, and almost every cop has a wall where they've got six or seven or ten or fifteen patches along with hats and right, right. you know, it just seems to be a real collectible thing yeah. amongst just different each memorabilia, other. things yeah. like that. This is all the city patches for Phoenix. So some of you saw earlier, but then we have like traffic, our, our civilian staff, accident investigators, assistants, police assistants, court services, uh, all the unit, different patches for the air support, bomb squad, the patches that are rank, um, the insignia that goes on the coll collars for the sergeants and um, lieutenants, captains, commanders, chiefs, pins for each bureau and um, precinct, and then the awards that officers get uh, for different things, Medal of Valor, um, life-saving, things like that. Um, just a little bit of everything. And right next to it is we have a teletype machine. So back in the day, I get younger people, which changes every, every year to me, but... Younger people? This is our teletype. So um, this was early email. So it looks like a a miniature phone, or no, a miniature um, mailbox is the best way I could describe it. It's about four feet tall, gray, and has an old-time keyboard and then a paper roll uh, in the, on top of it that you can see through the glass. Um, it reminds me of, like those old-time piano players that had the... the right, the, the old reels. Yeah, that yeah. would you know, play. But what would happen is you would type on the, the, the keyboard, and then um, that message would then go to the... Um, 
uh, on the paper, but it'd be sent by wire uh, to another agency. So and then it was early it voicemail. Yeah, yeah, early email, voicemail, yeah. And then they could, you would usually send a message, hey, we're looking for so-and-so for murder or this and that. And then they could send one back to you that would print out on the opposite machine next to it. But it was very... Okay very uh, efficient back in the day before we had... And it went through phone lines? Or yeah, how'd... phone lines. Okay. It's almost like telegraph. Or Basically, fax. it was. Yeah, it was, it's like early tele, or late telegraph for the police department, but early fax for, um, for uh, everything There isn't else. a whole lot of keys on this little uh, No, it's keyboard. very basic, and there is a shift key and a figure key, so you can change, just like a typewriter, from one to the other. Okay. And then we turn around, and we've got... Uh, Old Kawasaki police motorcycle and a helicopter. There's a helicopter down here. Yeah, we have a full-size helicopter, fully operational when we got it. Um, it's basically from the 70s. Uh, it's a two-seater, and if again, I refer to common shows that I remember, but like MASH, if you remember that helicopter, right. it's similar to that with the big bubble in the front of the helicopter, uh, the three blades on top. Uh, very simple, no doors on this helicopter right at the moment. But these were used, these were actually used as training uh, helicopters for the Vietnam War. So they would train the pilot stateside. Okay. The other helicopter, the same helicopter would already be in Vietnam, but they would learn here. Right. Because it's more controlled and easier. And then they got there, they already knew how to, to fly it. But after the war, you had all these helicopters and all these pilots coming back without a job. So there was a company that refurbished the helicopters, sold them to, as pilot programs to, to departments to try out. And we did the same thing. We tried it out. We hired a couple of Vietnam vets uh, to fly them, became officers, and that started our uh, helicopter program. In fact, one of the pilots up, uh, that's volunteering is up front today that okay. actually flew this helicopter. And how did you get this down here? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it looks like you had to bring it down in pieces. Kind of. You know, the kids say, you know, we opened the roof and landed it. And that, there that, you go. I like that simple answer. <laughs> the fact was the front door is uh, about a five-foot, six-inch opening, and it's about eight feet tall. We had taken the door out. This is when we were remodeling the space. Right. And I took the skids off and I took the blades off. And I had two teams of people with uh, ropes on each side. And we drug okay. it in here and then reassembled the, that part of it. Oh, uh, well, I guess it wasn't all. It, it looked like it would no, just be looked, a lot bigger no, deal. It, it, we literally had fractions of inches on each side, but it, it fit. If, uh, in fact, I joke, it's not insured for theft because <laughs> no one's going to get it out of here. Exactly. <laughs> And then next to it, like you said, is the motorcycle. We have different patches and pins that the, the uh, officers would wear. In fact, the mannequin inside the helicopter has some of that equipment um, that, that they would have worn back then. The pilots would describe it as uh, flying on a lawn chair with a lawnmower strapped to my back. Yeah. That's how they describe it because it's so simple and small. But it was very effective. I was going to say, it had to have changed police work tremendously. Absolutely. In fact, you can't get away from a helicopter. Th and that's what they said back then. You could see, there, we even have a quote where it talks about, you could see in your neighbor's yard all around that house. So if you're, you had an alarm call or something like that, you can see 360 around the whole neighborhood what's happening. So, and with the radios I talked about, you just, you're not getting away. You know, you got a helicopter, you got. Uh, men and women on the on the ground looking for you, and then you got a radio that can transmit to every state, local, federal agency in the st in Arizona. Uh, uh, you just don't have a chance, to be honest. Right? Oh, you don't. I've I've taken a ride in a helicopter, and we were looking for some wildlife, and it was one of those things that you could see them anywhere they went. Oh yeah, yeah. 
It was just amazing. Here we have a little, um, I would say little, but it's about six feet tall, two feet wide, two feet deep, and it's got two large, uh, like almost. Um, it's a reel to reel. Yeah, player. reel to reel player. It's double reel to reel player. It's 16 channels, so we record up to 16 either phone lines, uh, dispatch channels, things like that. Uh, we would have had rows of these, obviously. Um, they change them out once, you know, and store them for about a month if they had to play it back for any reason. Very cumbersome, but that's the technology they, they use. And this was for recording phone calls, phone like calls, if there was a kidnap situation. Somebody calls or in 911. Back then it wasn't 911, right. but they call in the, the police department or the dispatchers would be recorded as well when they're broadcasting the officers just as a oh, matter of record. Okay. Yeah. Would they take these also to people's homes for recording no, not the conversation? No, Nothing not this back big. then. This no. year was all just Even back then, they stuff. probably wouldn't have recorded um, at that time period. You okay. Know, recorders weren't, portable recorders really weren't, weren't common until the, the portable um, um, recorders. Walkman. Yeah, Walkmans came out. Yeah. Here's an old switchboard about... Um, uh, it's about four feet tall, and it has the old plugs that cables that pull out. They're weighted, and then you plug it into a socket, and that's how the switchboard would connect the calls. So we would have the same thing. This would be a police switchboard that the calls would come in. Um, they would take the information if they needed to transfer the call to another city agency. They could. Now this would go into the old uh, on the corner uh street phone it would be connected to that right to that so, street yeah, phone so yeah. then okay so so she could be sitting there with that plugged in for 20 minutes right. before a cop saw the little light right. on top of his they phone. probably yeah they would probably see the light on the building pretty quickly because they'd hear the horn first and they turn around and look up at the light okay but it, it's the old dial a lot of the younger people don't you know remember the old <laughs> dial system but it's the old dial unfortunately i do <laughs> I, I had a lot of little things on my finger from hitting it too hard <laughs> Yeah, and then you got Patty Wagon over here. She's dressed in uh, in female attire. Yeah, so she's she was one of our officers. Um, Jane had worked our community programs, and she would go out to the schools and teach kids uh, about stranger danger. Um, oh, okay. Say no to drugs, things like that. Um, how to call the police if you needed help. How to you know things like that. But she would actually bring out. She made this little Patty Wagon out of wood, or had a friend make it. And she'd take that out with her. She even had a pony she would dress up as a oh, in black and white stripes and put a little mask <laughs> on its head that she would take with her. So it really was quite involved in um, the community and what she did. And looks she, like they had several different little posters made and, and other things yeah. with her. It looks like that would have been a lot of fun. She, yeah, I'm sure she had a great time. And she had, uh, it was in a uh, storage shed. She didn't want it to be destroyed, so she donated it to the museum and... We were so glad to be able to put it on display and keep that as part of our history. That's that's fun. That's a good way to teach kids. And it's just like this was also this little robot. So this is a like a kid's small bike with a uh, puppet figure on it, and right. it was, it's actually a robot, believe it or not. So what would happen is he would um, an officer would have a remote control that he could talk into a headset about thirty feet away, and he could control the bike. Oh. Make it actually ride forward, backwards, have his mouth move, all that stuff. And it, its sole purpose of this little puppet with a helmet and the police uniform was to teach kids about bike safety. Okay. Uh, this would have been about the 70s, 80s period um, um, when we had these. Um, just, a, and again, another educational thing, just like McGruff. So a lot of people might be familiar, familiar with McGruff, um, take a bite out of crime. We have a, a costume of McGruff here. Um, 
I always wanted to dress up in it and maybe spook somebody and just wait till they walk through, but we don't do that. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, McGuff, it was very popular back in the, the time right. period, and they still use McGruff today. Uh, very interesting history with McGruff. All kinds of um, material and uh, products that they created from that. <laughs> then you have a display here of the Phoenix Police Reserve. So, and it started in 1918. Yeah, the reserves have been around for a very long time. So they had approached us and wanted to, to, uh, to put up a display to represent their history. So we were more than happy to do that and allow them to design and come up with this, this display. Uh, it shows the uniforms from the past to the current, uh, some of the badges they had over time, some of the awards they received. Uh, and what um, does the reserve do? They are, they are non-paid, fully authorized police officers. So they are a police officer. They're just not paid. They may be a doctor, um, a teacher, you name it. But they, they just want to volunteer for the department as Kinda a police like officer. Kind of like neighborhood watch, all except authorized. But they're really a police officer. They have the same requirements, the same authority as a, any officer that, on the street. Um, really? Yep. They have to go through the same training, the same, you name it, everything's identical. So... And um, so, how often they set their own time? I mean, they work for two hours a day, or no, they usually just work, on a weekend. No, or they, something? they'll usually work on their weekend, and they'll work with a patrol squad and go out with another. Usually, they can go on their own, or they'll ride with somebody. Okay, and they'll just be a supplemental uh, backup officer as well. So, but they could ride by themselves. If, if they use if them a lot, like for big events. They'll or? use them for special events, parades. Uh, you okay. name it. Yeah. Wow. Now, these guys here are tactical looking. Yeah, they mean business. So we don't have, you hear a SWAT. We don't have right. SWAT. We have what's called special assignments unit. Okay. Same thing, but that's our term. Um, these guys are all dressed in kind of a dark black or dark blue black uniform. One has an MP5 machine gun on his, uh, strapped to his chest with his other equipment, his helmet, his goggles, his mask. The other gentleman has a uh, uh, assault rifle. Um, and then on the very bottom is one of the sniper rifles. All these are actually a part of their team, so they're, okay. they're not props. They're actually used by the officers back then. And with photographs of the officers doing their various um, SWAT activities. Um, Do these guys get used a lot, or are they just kind of on standby for the No, they're part? actually they're, they're out doing things when they're not called in. So they may do, be doing surveillances. They may be picking up people for warrants, uh, things like that. And then... They try not to keep them assigned to like a patrol function because then they get caught up on a call. Right. So it's more stuff they can break away from if they have to. And they also get called off, called out if they're off duty. Um, okay. There's several squads, so they usually have plenty of people to 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 cover that. Okay. Now this is an interesting looking contraption. We're looking at a tracked vehicle that's probably uh, four foot long, has kind of narrow tracks on it. And it looks like a robot for going in and it's got a camera on top, lights, speakers. It, what's it for? For picking up bombs? Yeah, so this is one of our early bomb robots. Um, it has a claw in the front for picking up. This, this particular one happens to be wireless. We have another one just across the way that's wired, so it has a spool of cable okay. that, that could be several hundred feet away. Uh, probably still too close to a, a exploding bomb, but that one has... Uh, six wheels on it, so that that's constructed a little different than this one, uh, but very effective. Today they'd be much smaller. Um, in fact, they'd be considered tiny compared to these uh, back in the day. But you'd be able to watch in a camera screen, 
uh, what was happening, what you're picking up. We have a fake bomb in one of the claws to demonstrate how it, how it works. Um, and it's but, interesting to see the difference in the technology between this one. What, what era is this one? Probably these, 1970s? Yeah, these are our early 70s. The other one's probably more 80s to, to 90s um, because oh, of the wireless capability. Yeah, I was going to say, world of difference yeah, between yeah. the way the two look. But. And safety, too. I mean, like I said, being 100 feet away versus several hundred feet away is right. quite an advantage. Well, or getting your cord wrapped up or caught as you're yeah, going around yeah. underneath the tire, yep. or just like an extension yep, cord. Yep, that's all it is. Wow. But they're very effective. The, um, I mentioned the police women earlier. So we did a small display on the police women on the apartment, and part of the display shows one of the gals in her skirt and, and jacket, and she's wearing a purse, a large purse, with her gun and handcuffs in it. And those were actually designed to be a holster purse. Okay. Uh, before the um, you know, public has it now, but now it's back then is the first time they actually had it. Uh, they would have done... Depending on how you look at history, we had police personnel back in the 30s. They're jail matrons. They take care of jail nurses, things like that, for the Phoenix Police Department. In the 50s, like this lady is depicted, they would do, like I said, the juvenile-type stuff, traffic, meter-maid type stuff, writing parking tickets, things like that. And they had to wear a skirt. They had to wear a skirt, and they, they were expected to make their uniform because they weren't available. Oh, really? Now, if you didn't know how to sew, you'd go to the chief's wife or find a friend to sew the, the outfit for you. Um, Seems like working in a skirt doing police things would be kind of an inconvenience. Right. And, and they didn't do any hands-on arrests at this time period. And as I mentioned, in the 70s, that's when they, they refocused and they were hiring women for patrol. Right. So they would actually be in their own patrol cars, just like anyone else, um, uh, doing law enforcement, the same authority. Back in the 50s, though, they had to wear nylons. And one of the gals I had talked to probably 30 years ago that had been on during that time, she said that they would take mascara and draw a line down the back of their leg to look like the, right. the old-time... Right, uh, uh, The old uh, nylons, nylons that were yeah. sewn up the back. Because that way the sergeants would look at their legs and say, oh, they're wearing, they must be wearing it because I can see the line, and they'd leave them alone. But it was much cooler, I guess. So they, <laughs> they would just have to make sure their legs were fairly tan at that time right. so they would be left alone. But um, wow. just very interesting of, on that. Huh. And part of the noise you hear in the background, that's we have a... 1986 Chevy Celebrity, and those are the lights that go on automatically by a sensor under the uh, car. So this is one of the displays that we, we have uniforms kids can try on, a uh, prisoner outfit they can try on as well. They love getting in the car and playing in the car. It's, um, oh, so it's all set up for yep, yep, you that's, play in that. We have padding on the side so we don't get fingers caught in there. Uh, the screen has been removed to make it more comfortable. There's a computer they can play on. It's... Um, I don't want to say it's indestructible, but it's been here, it's 30, 40 years old, and it's still in one good piece, so wow. they've, they've taken care of it. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's fun. Yeah, yeah. They can, ride, they can sit on the, the motorcycle and, the, and also on the, in the car. And you got the uniforms. Yeah. I mean, yeah, how much better can it be? Plenty of uniforms. Some of them, most of them are sized for kids. Uh, you know, we've had some small officers on the department, so we tend to try to get their uniforms so they, they fit the kids more. But there are some adult sizes as well, and they love doing the, the photographs. That is so cool. Okay. As we wrap around the car, we have a crime scene uh, display, one of our larger displays. kind of shows an indoor-outside oh. scene with uh, how, to collect, how we collect evidence, blood, DNA, things like that. 
You've got a imprint of a shoe, the, a casting of a shoe. A casting of a shoe. It's actually my my footprint. Okay. I just had to, you know, I had to use something, and right. I, I had an extra shoe. Um, but it shows a little bit of red on there. It's it's supposed to depict the blood, but it's actually a stain, okay. just to show what blood right. might look like. And then the inside scene of how they track to the bullets when it's shot through a glass, how they figure out where they came from, things like that. Taking prints, luminol, which is uh, how they use they use to detect blood that's been cleaned up. Okay. There's also a, a double microscope where they uh, compare bullets. Um, to each other to see if... Like for ballistics? Yeah, so like a test bullet from an actual bullet okay. from a crime scene. They can figure out where it came from. And then we have a, a, a skull on display. It's a plastic skull, but it shows how they use clay. Half the side is the skull. The other half is the clay figure that they, they um, try to identify the person. So what they do is they apply these little white dots to approximate the skin and muscle, and then they put clay over it glass eyes, things like that, and they know based on um, the, the skull, the age, things like that, they, they can usually figure out the ethnicity, the sex, because they have the rest of the body. Right. But the whole goal is to create a, uh, an image, a clay image, that they can take a photograph of it, get it out to the public that hopefully somebody identifies these remains that may be found in the desert and uh, get the remains back to the family and maybe solve the crime, whether it was a, you know somebody just... Uh, got lost in the desert and died, or somebody was killed and dumped in the desert. And how accurate are those They're pictures? They're very, very accurate. Are they? In fact, yeah, I've seen photos of the, the, the clay model and the actual person, and they do a really good job. A lot of it's computerized now, to be honest. It's kind of a, a lost art anymore. So a lot of it's computerized for efficiency. Um, I would just think it would be so hard to just take a skull. All yep. skulls kind of yep. look the same. Yep. To be able to build a face it is with a science. nose yep. size yep. and everything yep. else. It's, it's an absolute science, and they're pretty, pretty accurate. Wow. We also have a display, to a large display to the 9-11. Um, so we have uh, some uniforms from the officers back in the day. Um, we have a hat that one of the officers was wearing during 9-11. We have it really? actually enclosed in ac acrylic just because it still has the original dust on it, which... Oh. As we know, it was very hazardous right. back then, so we had to seal it in a special container. And a lot of mementos from 9-11. We, we actually have a section of 9-11 that we've got. Our, our former curator was able to negotiate with the uh, uh, folks in New York. So after it was no longer deemed evidence, they allowed museums to uh, petition to get parts of the, the building. So we have a very three-foot, small three-foot section Wow. Uh, of one of the towers. It's probably, uh, it's three, 400 pounds. It's incredibly heavy, believe it or not. It still has the burn marks on it. Uh, we don't know which building it came from, which floor, all that. But uh, we're, we're glad to have an, uh, glad to have another uh, display just to honor 9-11. And, and again, to the younger kids that come that don't necessarily get it uh, taught anymore in school or weren't around back then, obviously. Right. That's hard to believe that's history now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And then wow. we're walking into a large room, and this is our memorial room. So this is a memorial to all the Phoenix police employees that were killed in the line of duty. Uh, on the walls, we have uh, about a, uh, seven different large display cases, and each display case has six photos of the officers killed, and be be below each one is the description of their name and date they died and circumstances of their death. And then in the middle, we have a bronze statue that's on a uh, granite uh, base with uh, granite stone um, uh, 
markers for each officer killed in the line of duty with their name uh, and date of their death. This statue... This is a cool statue. Yeah, th this bronze statue, the best way to describe it, it's like the phoenix bird, an angel officer rising out of the, the casket with an officer grieving over the casket. Uh, this was designed by Todd White. He was a detective for the Phoenix Police Department. And uh, he actually went to the widows that were around at that time in 93. Right. And he took scrapings from the officer's badges, belt buckles, oh, really? plates on the back so it wouldn't damage it. And then he, it just, you know, it's probably a, you know, cup full of uh, scrapings. But he melted it in with the brass to be symbolic of all, all that. So this, it contains wow. parts of, of those badges and things like that. That is that. That's a memorial, right? Yeah, and it, wow. as far as I know, you know, it's it's. This is probably seven feet tall. Uh, it's probably four by four by four five, by five, something yeah. like that. And it sits it sits pretty high up. But uh, it says honor on the shield that he's holding, and he has a sword that says justice, and he's dressed in a like a robe, but it's like a police uniform and a robe, com right. Like tr transforming from one to the other. Um, and with with the wings for angel. With the wings and, for yeah, the angel. It's just, it's just really a cool bronze. Yeah, we wanted to depict and represent the, the loss of the R staff um, in the best way we could think of. And that's why we created this room. Now, when we built this in 93, we never thought we would fill this up. And um, unfortunately, you know, when we lost Officer New not too long ago, we ran out of space on this. So when we moved into this space 10 years ago, we added, there's a bottom row of about another oh. 30, 20 to 30 concrete or granite uh, slabs. And Officer New was the first one to go on the granite slabs outside the memorial itself. Uh, well, hopefully there aren't any more. Hopefully yeah. they all remain blank. Yeah, that, that would be my hope. The reality is, and I tell people, there's children that aren't even born today that are going to be on this wall, which is just right. really makes it, it really makes it, um, come home it, you realize how serious it is and tragic and now you've got pictures what's what's the oldest picture so up the here? oldest is Hayes Birch he he died in 1925 he was killed by uh, two brothers he had stopped a car not too far from here the guys were siphoning gas out of a car they he pulled up behind him uh, but he only saw one guy he didn't know there was two and he thought it was just siphoning gas well they were actually on the run from homicides in Oklahoma oh. and the brother was hiding around the corner with a rifle so when he pulled up they, sh they shot him uh, he didn't die right away in fact I was able to interview his son in the 80s he was pretty old by then he was a local attorney and he, he would tell me how his dad said he would once they got the bullet out he'd hammer it out and make a, a necklace for him or something you know but he you know, back then the medicine wasn't the same. Oh, yeah. You know, he probably would have survived today's medicine, but uh, unfortunately passed away. They went over to Tempe Buttes, which is a mountain range not far from, from us, and just a small little mountain. That was where the, all the outlaws hung out in the time and took them into custody, and uh, they went to jail. The interesting thing is we didn't have another shooting or death um, for uh, uh, almost 25 years. Wow. Um, and then after that, it, it's just like period in between deaths kept getting shorter and shorter till well now it's it's less about every less than three years we lose an officer or two it's it's sad i don't know what other states and cities are like well um, so <clears throat> was there people before birch no that was our very first that was the very first, first one in phoenix so you think about we started as marshals in 1881 didn't lose anybody for 40 years until 1925 wow that is amazing we also have in here uh, above up high, we have centurions made out of the same uh, brass, and they're 
the winged in, uh, individuals as well in a police uniform with a shield and a sword. And they, we created those. They're almost like guarding, guarding the um, display, I guess, best way. It's like right. an, just a thing to show respect, but they're like watching over the display as well as a mannequin in our uh, honor guard uniform that's doing a salute holding the uh, folded flag. Right. And he's, it's like an ongoing salute to the, uh, the employees killed in the line of duty. And then you've got a really nice, a couple of really nice stained glasses. So what happened is we have one stained glass. It's a picture of uh, four officers. Christ is behind one of the officers and then two girls and a baby. This actually came from the law enforcement ministries when it was uh, opened back in the Oh, for 20 years, and I think they closed in their uh, early 2000s. Okay. They had this in their chapel. In fact, this was actually eight different windows, believe okay. it or not. The centerpiece would have been one window. These outside pieces were from another window. And we hired a stained glass artist to pull them apart to make it into one or actually three different displays. Okay. But it's absolutely gorgeous. It, it, it is. It looks like it's custom to this window, but it wasn't. It was just reconfigured to fit the space that's here. But actually, just... Just beautiful. The ministry they had, it wasn't just Christian, it was all denominations, but um, that's what they did the, the photograph of. Um, okay. And they had it in their chapel. So the officers had somewhere go, to go quiet. You know, it was quiet on a bad call or right. uh, suicide or a child drowning or something. And they did services to the officers, uh, things like that. Wow. We also have uh, some, these are called battle ribbons. So these are, they go on a flagpole. They're about three feet long, about two inches wide, and it's, it's a streamer, and it has the officers' names on it, and the date, end of watch date, and this would go to all the officer funerals to represent okay. all the previous officers killed, plus the current one that's being honored at that time. Now, this has been... So these are for the ones that are killed on duty? Right, right. Okay. Um, this one was retired because, they, it, as you can see, it's kind of beaten up a little bit and gotten right. old. So they created a new one, but they, they wanted us to have the... Uh, you know, to honor um, the officers by having the old one in here. So we were more than happy to have it. And then also we have in here is, I talked about the gentleman with the four notches on his right, gun. And right, This is, uh, there's a statue here that's probably, uh, it's on a base that's about three feet tall. And the statue itself, it looks like a star on the base on its side. And then above that's an old cowboy leaning over on a rock with cactus behind him. And that was Gordon Selby, the gentleman I talked okay. about. As an old cowboy, they used him as a, um, a uh, example of what they w wanted for a state display. So the real one is about 20, 30 feet tall, and it's at the state capitol. And it has wow. on the sides all the state officers okay. killed, any law enforcement killed in the state on the sides. So quite an impressive uh, display. And again, we're very happy to have this, this small representation of it here. Well, this is, this is really an interesting museum. The history part of this is, is so interesting. And I really appreciate you taking your time today, oh, no Bob, to, to show us through this. If you're in the Phoenix area, this is an interesting place to go. They've got some kid interactive things. They've got things to do. Do you guys have a website? Yeah, so our website is phxpdmuseum.org. Just think of Phoenix Police Museum. It's just all abbreviated. Abbreviated, so phxpdmuseum.org. And that'll, okay. we have much more information on that. We have gift shop, we have stories, all kinds of neat stuff. And this is just a really cool museum. I, I highly recommend if you're in Phoenix and you're looking for something to do for 
an hour or whatever. It, the parking wasn't bad today. Parking, I tell people, if they go on the website, they'll see where the parking is. We have a city parking garage, we get half off. So we'll make sure you ask for a coupon, we can get you half off parking there. Um, and it's a short, maybe two minute walk from the parking garage. So yeah, it's it's nice place, nice museum. I really like it here. I appreciate your time, Bob. And I finish these things out by saying the world is full of wonder. People need to get out and explore. Absolutely. This may not be the biggest museum you'll go to, but it's definitely one of the more interesting ones. Well, and uh, everybody have an absolutely wonder-filled day. All the roll and go. Where am I to go? Meet Johnny. Where am I to go? For I'm a young and a sailor lad. And where am I to go?